The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Very encouraging, as we've had the opportunity to talk about the subject of heaven, Getting old now, and as many of us are, uh, it's good to think about these things. Uh, for many of us, it won't be long until we step into that other world where we see the Lord in His glory. So it's good to talk about heaven and think about preparing to go to that wonderful place. This past week, I've been at the Shepherds Conference, which I've told you several times is the highlight of my spiritual year. Every year I enjoy going there to get a bit of heaven on earth. And that's because I get to hear a lot of preaching, which preachers need. There's a lot of great singing there. Um, and we just come together to rejoice in the salvation that we have. And that's what brings thousands of preachers together for that conference. It's a common bond that's between us. It's the common purpose that the name of Christ must be lifted up to all nations and there are preachers that literally do come from all over the world to this conference. I think this, this year there were 62 different countries from around the world that were represented. And uh, it's just a great time of fellowship around the Word. And so we think about why do we do such things as this? Why, why does the name of Christ need to be lifted up? And the reason for that is because we are creatures that are made for eternity. We've been created with an immortal soul, and God had a purpose in creating us, and that was for His glory. Uh, there's a great verse in Revelation chapter 4 that's taken from a scene in heaven in which there are 24 elders that represent all of the redeemed of all ages, and they're standing around the throne of God, and this is what they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. They said, thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And we look at that verse, and the first thing that we think is, what things is he talking about? And that scene in heaven, it's all things. All things that are there are there for God's glory. All the angels, all the sights that are there. But mainly I think that we have to look at this, that he must be talking mostly about the people. That the people are there because of God's glory. That's why God has saved them, to bring them to heaven where they can glorify him. And so if you were to condense the theme of the Shepherd's Conference into one compact sentence, it would be that all of these preachers are gathered there for God's glory. And it's to encourage them to preach the truth in order to make more disciples who will be in heaven for God's glory. That is to realize the purpose of God's creation of uh, these special people that he calls out to salvation. Now Jesus said that the purpose of those that are given to him by the Father is this, his glory, and then he's going to take us home to be with him in heaven where we'll all be able to see the glory of the Father. So that's why I love the Shepherds Conference so much. Uh, uh, they never let you forget the reason that you're there. Uh, famous preachers are there. Many you've heard the names of. Famous preachers are there, and you don't see them pushing personalities all of the attention is given to Christ. And I, I so much appreciate that theology. 
Uh, I appreciate the commitment that they have to the purpose of our creation. And that's because I have been to so many conferences that become preacher fest. The big name preachers are there and they're there to tell about what they did, and their sermons always begin with I, they end with I. That's what you hear all of the time. I like to go to a place where God's glory is paramount, where we lift up Jesus Christ, and we don't think about that man that's standing behind the pulpit. Now here's something that I like about it. Maybe I'm just different from other people, but you'll notice that I don't move very far away from the pulpit. Uh, I like standing behind the pulpit. And down there, you don't see a preacher prancing around from this side over to that side and everybody watching to see where he goes and what he's going to do next. The reason that he stands behind the pulpit, and they emphasize this, is because the man is not to be seen. He's lifting up Christ. Christ is the one who's to be seen. So you stand here behind this, this desk where the power of God is, where the power of preaching is, and that's the thing that God has ordained to save people. It's not the preacher, it's the power of the Word that's given. And so that's what we want to lift up, the Word of God and the power of Jesus Christ. And so if there is actually a place that's close to heaven on earth, I think it would have to be right here where the Word of God is preached and where Christ is lifted, where Christ is exalted. That's heaven on earth. That's as close as you can get to the worship of heaven that there is. So I think that's what heaven is. Just give me Jesus. Give me more of Jesus. Talk more about Jesus. And I can promise you that's what heaven is going to be like. Heaven is the place of Jesus, the eternal home of the living God. Now I'd like to turn our attention to this text this morning of Revelation 21, uh, verses 1 through 5. In verse number 1, John writes, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God." And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. We've been at the beginning of this 21st chapter for a few weeks and here there are described some different aspects of heaven. We've talked about the new creation and how that the heavenly kingdom will encompass a new created universe and within it a new earth. I've spoken a little bit about the capital city of heaven, which is the new Jerusalem. And we are still waiting for more explanation of that, more descriptions of it that are given later in this chapter. We've talked about God's presence and about God himself and how that he is the most distinguishing feature of heaven, that there is no heaven without God. There's no way that we're able to describe what it's like to be in the presence of God, to come face to face with him, to see him in his glory, a glory that no mortal being has ever seen before. Now, when the Bible authors describe being in the presence of God, we always see them backing down with awe. 
they're, they're almost ashamed to come into the presence of God. But when we get to heaven, we have a mind that's made like Christ. We're made like Him. We begin bodies to worship the, our Lord God. And so when we get there, we have been made worthy to come into the presence of God. I don't know if you think very much about such things. I think maybe we ought to think about them more than we do. We would be much different people if we thought about them more. I think we ought to think about heaven. And our faith is going to end in the sight of God. And that's what this is all about. That's what salvation is all about. That someday we come into the presence of God to be face to face and see Christ. I think of Stephen when he was martyred. And how that when he was dying, he saw heaven opened. And there he saw the Lord Jesus standing in the glory of the Father. Standing beside the right hand of the throne of God. And those are thoughts that are just too wonderful for us to imagine. Our, our minds can't really wrap around such a, a great sight as that is. And so if we ever care to think about God's glory now, just think how blessed we'll be to wake up in heaven and just to see how far short our understanding of that place really is. Well, today I'd like to talk to you about some other aspects of heaven. It's hard for me to move away from that particular feature to talk about God in heaven I mean, I think I would much rather stay there on that, on that particular subject. But we are going to move away from that for now, and we will come back to it later on, and we'll talk some more about God on His throne and what heaven is like and the activities of heaven. But today I want to show you how that God's presence in heaven brings with it some wonderful benefits. In heaven there is the perfection of God. Everything there is 100% pure and perfect. And that's surely a monumental change from what we have here because everything in this world has the taint of sin on it. Nothing is perfect here. But in heaven, everything is perfect. The best we can do, the best we can be, uh, the best that we can have, all of that falls far short of what heaven is. And so if we, if we do think that there's a little bit of heaven on earth and we just have to realize that is only a pittance of wishful thinking because we haven't even touched anything like what heaven will be. So we're going to start a new outline today, and I want to speak to you of the wonderful benefits that believers have in heaven. But before we go there, I do want to emphasize again the absolute need of belief in Christ. Uh, there must be belief in Him in order to make heaven accessible. Now, there are too many people that have hope of heaven when their hope is not actually real. They're trusting in other things to get them there. They're not thinking about what Christ did, what, what the sacrifice of Christ did to uh, enable us to come to heaven. Because man's theology is always man-centered. He's always thinking about what he does. Uh, what do I do in order to get into heaven? And we turn our attention to self rather than to Christ. And so when we do that, we have a false hope of heaven. I wish more of you could attend the fundamentals class on Wednesday nights. Uh, there we have the opportunity to discuss things that I can't get to in, uh, in the Sunday morning sermons. There's so much to preach from the Bible, I just simply don't have enough time to talk about it all. And so we, we look at things a little more closely on Wednesday nights, and we stop and we talk about questions and things like this. And uh, it's just a great time around God's Word. But a few weeks ago, we were in fundamentals class, and, and I was talking about the story of the rich man who was in hell, and how did he ask Abraham to send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to touch his tongue and just to cool it just a little bit from that terrible torment that he was in? And Abraham said, no, that can't be done. 
You can't do that because there's a great gulf that's between us. You can't come to us. And we can't go to you. That's impossible. And I mentioned in that, in that uh, discussion that there is a physical, impossible gap between heaven and hell. And there isn't a bridge across it that you can go from one place to another. But the physical gap is only emblematic of the spiritual problem that exists. And that is the only bridge between heaven and hell is Jesus Christ Himself. That's the only way that you're going to be able to escape the torments of hell. You have to go across that bridge of Jesus Christ. And if you're looking for some other way, that is a false hope. Don't put your hope in anything else but Christ. So if you do have a hope of heaven, make sure it's not a false hope. Make sure that you're not trying to get up some other way because no other way will work. Christ is the only hope of heaven. And you have to see the Jesus that's in the Bible. You can't make up a Jesus in your own mind that you want Him to be. He has to be the one described in the pages of Scripture. He's the only one that will get you to heaven. And I thought that I just need to emphasize that again. I want to start with that because I do want you to see the gospel is in anything that you talk about, any, any message that you talk about heaven, the gospel has to be there. The benefits of heaven are great, but they only come because of what Christ did, not because of anything that we do. Now, I'd like us to look at verse number 4 where we began. These are the benefits of heaven. Verse number 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. What are the benefits of heaven? And when you take a job, this is one of the questions that you always ask. What are the benefits? Well, it used to be when you got a job, the benefit was a paycheck. You got to feed your family. You got a check at the end of the week, and that's all that you expected. But today, people aren't satisfied with the paycheck. There has to be a lot that goes along with a job. We want to know about health care. And uh, what about retirement? What about vacation time and profit sharing? Am I going to get a company car? So a good job isn't just a salary. It has to be loaded with benefits. Now, it really should be enough that when you talk to HR in heaven and you say, what are the, what are the benefits of this? That this is what you would hear and only this. Well, here is your benefit. You get to escape hell. That's all there is. Be happy with that. You get to escape hell. And so God says, you get that, get on out of here and leave me alone. You don't have to go to hell, that's your benefit. Well, if an employer should tell you, well, here's your benefit, you get a job. Just go on, get out of here, quit crying, you got a job. We're not going to be happy about that. And so we should be, I think, happy with heaven because we aren't going to hell, but God is much more gracious to us than that. It seems that the things that we ask employers in this life are the same things that we want to know about heaven. What is this job going to mean to my future? What about my retirement? What about my health? What is it going to be like if I spend my whole life with your company? What is it going to be like for me in the end when I'm too old to work? And so we want to know about that. Christians also want to know, what does the afterlife provide? Now let's suppose that I do get saved and I give my life in service to Christ. What is the future going to be like for me? I mean, I've done all this self-denial that the Bible says. I've bypassed all the things in this life that I could have, the things that make other people happy. What about my self-denial? What's it going to be like in heaven if I suffer for Christ? Well, Jesus had an answer for it. He said to the disciples in Matthew 16, 
Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then, and then shall he reward, and then shall he reward every man according to his work. So Jesus said, well, there is going to be a reward for self-denial. If you take up the cross that associates you with the pain and the suffering and the persecution and all the worldly disappointments that come with being a Christian, yes, there is going to be a reward. Now Paul expressed that, expressed that beautifully in the inspiring chapter of Romans chapter 8, and he sort of puts the reward beyond what you can even imagine when he says this, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In Revelation 21, we have an opportunity to see the glory of Christ revealed in us. And it's found in the benefits of serving Christ. Now, some have said these, this is a retirement plan with benefits that are out of this world. So, what are the benefits? Well, we can only get a start in it today. Next week, we're going to talk about it some more, and we'll take the benefits and relate them to the resurrection of Christ, because next week is Resurrection Sunday, so there will be another part to this. Uh, so we get a start today, and if you want to hear some good things, especially for those, again, of us that are a little bit older and thinking it's not going to be long until we see heaven, what is heaven like? What are benefits of it? Well, number one is that cares are gone when you get to heaven, cares are gone. How is it possible to understand just a little bit of what heaven is like? Most of us think that if we had a little bit more money, or a lot more money, if we had some more, that everything would be just fine. I mean, surely we think that as money increases, all the troubles, all the cares decrease. Just get a little bit more money. But did you know, you probably do, that the testimony of the rich tells a much different story. Uh, when you get rich and you have all the money you want, you just shift cares from one place to another place. Jim Carrey, the uh, comedian um, and actor, said, I, I hope that everybody could get rich and famous so they could see that those things are not the answer. Now, a great example of this is the rich man who came to Jesus with a very burdened heart. He was a man who had plenty of money. There, were, there was something, though, that was seriously bothering him, and that was money could not give him eternal life. Now, the Jews actually thought that money was equal to having God's favor. So if a person had money, if he was rich, that meant that God's blessings were on him, and so surely that person is headed for heaven. He doesn't have to worry about eternal life. But this man who came to Jesus knew there was something missing because he, he had no peace, there was no contentment in his heart. I mean, he could testify that money had only solved just the least of his problems, 
And his greatest need, the greatest need that he faced was the care of his soul. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the world and he loses his soul? And likewise, when we think about heaven, heaven has to be far more than just a beautiful place that has lots of stuff. If we were able to go to heaven where there's lots of stuff and that's all that it was, it wouldn't be satisfying. When we're here on this earth, we want more stuff. And when we've got more stuff, we're still not happy. We still want more stuff. And that's the way it would be in heaven. you got stuff, lots of stuff, but you want more. You know, I've always enjoyed traveling. I, I like to look at the earth's beauty. If you want to somehow compare that to most beautiful places on earth, to what it's like in heaven, I like to look at the earth's beauty. My wife's idea of vacation is a little bit different from mine. She likes to go to one place. Uh, she likes to get a book, curl up in the bed, stay there for two weeks or a week or whatever, and that's what makes her happy about vacation. At Shepherd's Conference, she wants to go with me every year. Uh, it's not because she gets to go to the conference, because she can't. They don't let women go to the Shepherd's Conference, and that's because, and get this, women can't be shepherds of God's churches. Women are not to be preachers. Sorry, Joyce, but that's just the way that it is. Women are not to be preachers. So she doesn't go to, to go to the Shepherd's Conference. She goes because all week long, I'm not going to be in the room with her. I mean, she, she gets the room to herself, and so she stays there in the hotel room for a whole week. Well, that's not my idea of a vacation. When I go on vacation, I want to keep moving. So when she goes with me, she keeps moving. We go as far as we can go in the amount of time that we have. It's far to the reaches and the end of the earth as we can and just give enough time to get back as fast as we can. That's my idea of vacation. Uh, Larry Jefferson and I uh, took a trip together a few years ago to see national parks in Arizona and Utah. And that was really a great trip just uh, to see the beauty of those places. And with all that Larry went through in the last part of his life, I'm sure that he would tell you that when he got to heaven, he wanted to see much more than just beauty. He wanted more in heaven. It wasn't just seeing stuff. Now, for a while, when you're on vacation, you can forget things. I mean, you can lose yourself in the surroundings, and uh, oh, it's just uh, wonderful to be on vacation. But you then begin to start wondering, how am I going to pay for all of this stuff? You can't stay on vacation forever. You can't have a permanent vacation so, well, you've got to do something about paying for it. Well, heaven is just a beautiful place, but the beauty is not sufficient enough to satisfy us as long as there's nothing different about us. Not only do you have to have something different about heaven, there has to be something different about us. Now, verse number 4 talks about a different life in heaven. And how do the Scriptures get that point across? Well, the only way that we can do do this is to take the negatives that we experience on a daily basis and reverse them. And that's what heaven is. It's the reversal of every negative effect of the fall of man. Now, when sin entered into the world, it was devastating. When Adam fell, uh, that caused all of our thoughts, our motives, our will, our desires, our bodies, our spiritual abilities. Everything that we are was radically affected by that fall. Everything was negatively impacted. And what we see here in, Re in uh, Revelation 21 is God reversing all of the negative aspects of the fall. When you trusted Christ, that process of reversing those negatives began. Final salvation is a process. Immediately, we are saved from our sins and we're headed to heaven, but there are still tenses of salvation that we have to go that relate to the past, present, and the future. 
In the past, we were saved from the penalty of our sin. That is our justification. In the present, we are being saved from the power of sin. And that is our sanctification. And in the future, we shall be saved from the presence of sin. And that is our glorification. Now, what we're talking about here is that last tense. It is our glorification. That's when we're saved completely from the presence of sin and all the effects of sin. Salvation is when this body is glorified and all the negative impacts of the fall on the body and the spirit have been reversed. And so to explain what heaven is like, the most effective way to do that is to talk about what heaven is not like. Why why is that? Because we've already experienced all the negatives. Now, if God had given us the positives of heaven, same things that we could not relate to, what good would it do us? And so what he does is he gives us the negatives here. We have no frame of reference for all the positives, but the negatives we've been through. And so we can explain and talk about heaven in a better way by telling you what heaven is not. That's the explanation of heaven. Knowing what heaven is not, that gives us the clearest picture of what it is. So let me, let me give you three negatives from these scriptures that will help you to understand the benefits of heaven. First, heaven is a place of no crying. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. All this world is a place of crying, isn't it? I'm not speaking of whining. I mean, there's plenty of that that goes on. But I'm talking about crying, crying that comes from sorrows from pain that's in your heart this world is a sorrowful place and it began on the day that you were born job 5 7 says yet man is born under trouble as the sparks fly upward we are born to trouble from the beginning to the end of our lives there is trouble your mother experienced it when you, with your birth now for some of you she was really sorry and so are we As soon as man fell, God turned to Eve and he said, In sorrow, in sorrow, you are going to bring forth children. Your mother looked at some of you and she said, I'm sorry that it ever happened. Uh, And you know that old joke that the the doctor took one look at you and slapped your mom instead of you on the behind when you were born. uh, But God doesn't mean that. God meant that the most blessed thing that could ever happen to a woman, the joy of having children is a very painful experience. I mean, childbirth itself, of course, is a painful experience. I remember a long time ago, I heard one, one woman who was trying to describe to people who never experienced childbirth, men, what the childbirth is really like, the pain of it. And she said, well, here's what it's like. You take your lower lip and stretch it over the top of your head. That's what it's like giving birth to a child. So birth is a painful process. And we know that raising children is also painful. Many times parents spend lots of time agonizing over a child that's gone off, has, has become wayward. And we spend hours and hours worrying about the children that we love, that they've gone off track and they brought bitterness to our souls. None of us can escape those kinds of sorrows, it seems. And it begins at day one. The, f- the first thing that a baby does is he cries. He- he's cold and he's hungry. And so he begins his life with troubles. As it says in Job, as surely as sparks from a fire fly upward, there's going to be trouble. And it goes all through our lives and it doesn't stop until we die. If you care to pick up one of the church prayer pages and look on that prayer page, you'll find lists of people that have troubles. There are sorrows on that page. There are people that have been diagnosed with cancer. There are brain tumors on the page. There's a man who has to have both of his legs amputated. 
There, there's a, a Parkinson's disease there. There are bereaved families who have lost loved ones. There's a lot of failing health that is on those pages. On the day that my wife was diagnosed with chronic liver disease, that's a, a vivid memory in my mind. I remember that the doctor took more than a gallon of ascites off of her abdomen and he said to us, there's a very, very good chance that she has cancer. And I remembered on that day that we agonized about that. We agonized until the test came and said, well, it's not cancer. But we still had troubling news because there's no cure for it. And, and still, the disease is deadly. And it's left her with a life of pain and depression so that on some days she can't even function. Sorrows go with this life. One of my best friends had a nine-year-old daughter that died with leukemia. And I can't imagine what it would be like to have a daughter or a granddaughter of mine to die with a, with a disease. It's hard to go through those things. And now this friend of mine has cancer himself so that now the cancer is eaten away at his face so that now he has an eye that he can't even close. And still there are other types of sorrows that we see on the prayer page. On the back page there are names that have been there for years. There are friends and family that need to be saved. Concerned Christians have asked us to pray for them because there is no greater sorrow than knowing that one of your loved ones who doesn't know Jesus Christ will end in the flames and the fires of hell unless they come to Christ. And so there are many tears that are shed over such things. The world is a place of constant sorrow. Example upon example is multiplied. And heaven would not be a wonderful place with all the spectacular sights that we can see, with all the things that still bring us pain and sorrows. That needs to be done away with. And that's the hope that we have, is that things, not just things in heaven will be changed, but we are going to be changed. We're going to be completely different there than we are here. Now, there's a new and beautiful earth that's coming. There's a brand new universe that's coming. All of that's good. But the best part of heaven is that we are changed. All the reasons for sorrows and pains are gone. All pain and suffering is gone. Now, you think back for a moment to that prayer page. We know that if the Lord doesn't intervene, that some and maybe all of those that are without salvation will die without Christ. And some think that when they get to heaven, that they'll be thinking about a lost relative or a friend that died. And they'll be there in heaven and, and we'll have tears in our eyes because we know that we have loved ones that have gone to hell. Please don't misunderstand what this verse is saying. This verse does not mean that God has a box of heavenly Kleenexes and he spends his time dabbing sorrowful eyes, tears from the eyes. No, when we wake up in heaven, all bad thoughts are gone. All of those are gone because our minds are changed to be like Christ. And maybe that's hard for you to understand how that you'll enter into heaven knowing that there are loved ones that have gone to hell. Why won't you cry? Why wouldn't that move you to tears, especially when you see how wonderful heaven is? Well, I think the Bible is telling us that the time to cry for people that are lost is now. Pray for them now. Cry over them now. Uh, talk to the Lord about them now. You won't be doing that later. Do it now. There aren't any sorrows in heaven. There are no sorrows. God has changed us. He gives us the mind of Christ. Now you know that when Jesus was here, He wept for sinners. The Bible says He wept for sinners. 
But Jesus in heaven does not shed tears for people. He did what he came to do. He left this world with the message of the gospel. And now any thoughts that he's crying about this and what's happening in heaven are just wrong. Heaven is not a place of crying. And why are there no tears in heaven? Well, the last part of the verse tells us, former things are passed away. And then in verse number 5, all things are made new. So there is no reason for tears in heaven. Now, God doesn't make heaven just a slightly better earth. All is completely new. And I don't know how to explain that to you, except to say that sorrows are a blank. There's an empty void there where sorrows once were. They just don't exist any longer. It could be there's not even the word sorrow in the heavenly vocabulary. And then there's more good news. Pain is the much cause of, uh, much cause of crying, isn't it? I mean, physical pain and emotional pain. Many tears are shed because of pain. I know there's some of you that live with pain. I told people in the congregation at Larry's memorial that Larry would become my Job. And I meant that he would be an example. I could use him many times in, uh, for examples in sermons. And so I think of the years that he lived with pain. I mean, if he cried, he, he didn't cry because of himself. But that doesn't mean there weren't deep scars left because of pain. Now, praise the Lord, he's in heaven now with not a, a, a glimpse, not, not a, a, a tinge of any kind of pain. Sorrows that cause pain are gone. Now, you think for a minute what this kind of news was like for people that lived in the time of John. Now, today we have a multi-billion dollar drug industry making pills to relieve our pain. We have stashes of pills to relieve pain. But these people couldn't. Verse number four must have meant much, much more to them than it does to us. They couldn't go to the hospital and get the strong stuff to stop all pain. I remember when I, when I had a heart attack a few years ago, they shot pain medicine into me and it stopped all the pain. And I just laid there, keep that coming, keep that coming. It feels so good. I was floating. I mean, that was good stuff. Well, John's readers never got a shot. They never popped a pill for pain. They didn't have any thing to relieve pain. Some of the worst pains is what would happen in battle, where surgeons had to saw through flesh and bone to cut off an area that might get gangrene in it because of a wound. And so the doctor would say, well, here's your pain medicine. Here's a piece of rope. Bite down on this. That's their pain medicine. John knew about pain. There are many scholars who believe that John was boiled in oil. And because the Romans were superstitious, the boiling and oil didn't kill him, and so they didn't try again. They just exiled him to this rocky, barren island of Patmos where he received this revelation. But here was a terribly disfigured, scarred man because he'd been boiled in oil. He knew about pain. And can you imagine when he heard this from God, that God said to him, Come up. Come up here. There is no pain. I could go on thinking about Christian martyrs. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It describes inventive ways that they used to torture Christians. They inflicted as much pain as possible. And you think, what's worse than being burned in a fire? Well, what about being tortured over days and days and days until death is a welcome relief? And so they could read passages like this, and it's a blessing to them because God says to them, come up, come up here. There is no more pain, no sorrow, no crying, and there is no pain. And then in verse number 4, we see, There shall be no more death. And so heaven is a place with no cemeteries. 
Now surely we recognize that as a major blessing of our salvation. Jesus died to end death. He arose from the grave to conquer death. Hebrews says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So eternal life is where death never touches the saints of God. We are risen with Christ never to die again. But you need to see that there is an awful contrast here, a terrible contrast, and that is that the bodies of those who die without Christ are also going to rise, but they're going to rise at a different resurrection, and they will enter into what is called a second death. And that's because death has not been conquered for them. Revelation 20.14, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And those bodies of those people are, are raised to be rejoined with their spirits, and they're judged, and they're cast into the lake of fire, where they will experience a, an, an eternal conscious death. Death goes on forever for them. It never ends for them. Sorrows are heaped upon sorrows ad infinitum. But Christians are never going to see a cemetery. And one of the ways that was that was shown to me very graphically, was when I walked down the hillside of the Mount of Olives towards the eastern side of Jerusalem. And as you walk down that same hill where Jesus often walked, you look over to your left and there's a large cemetery with tombs that are above the ground that overlook the city. The Jews place rocks on top of those tombs instead of flowers. And there's different ideas about why they do this. Some say that they do because it's an attempt to hold the spirit down so that it doesn't leave the body for several days. That's one of their superstitions. But the sight of those tombs overlooking the city was a graphic reminder to me that Christ is going to rule from Jerusalem. And when Jesus comes, the bodies of His saints are going to arise from their graves. The graves will be opened and believers will come out of those graves. Their bodies are raised to go with Christ. But sadly, as I looked at that hillside, I realized that most, if not all, of the people that are in those graves are waiting for a different resurrection. They didn't believe in Jesus Christ. Most likely, none of them in those cemeteries were Christians. And so their bodies will be raised to a second death. Thank God we don't have to do that. We know this as God's people. We are raised never to die again. And that's because Christ has defeated death. And there are no tears in heaven because death is ended. Death is never going to be seen again. Nobody is going to have to sit in a hospital room in eternity waiting for eternity to end. There are no cemeteries in heaven. J. Vernon McGee wrote in this passage and he said, I once knew an engineer who in the early days had a great deal to do with the planning and plotting of the great freeways which crisscross this country today. I asked him, is it going over the mountains or down through the valleys or crossing the rivers? That's the biggest problem for you. He replied, the biggest problem is missing the cemeteries. And McGee continued, he said, this earth is a great cemetery today, but all of that is going to end. There will be no burying ground in the New Jerusalem. The undertaker will be out of business. So death is gone because heaven is a place of life, only and always life. Christ 
conquered death when he arose from the grave. Now very quickly, let me give you a third negative that helps us to understand heaven. And that is that heaven is a place with no curse. Take a look at the 22nd chapter, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse. And that's the major change, the major key to this great change that takes place from this life to that life. In Galatians chapter 3, it says that Christ has redeemed us from the cursed. So those, the curse, those things that we talked about earlier, our thoughts, our motives, our will, our spiritual abilities, everything that we are in this body, that's all ruled by the curse. And in heaven, there is no more curse. In our glorified bodies, that curse has been lifted. 1 Corinthians 15 says that our bodies are raised incorruptible. And not only is it raised in perfection, it can never be infected with the curse again. Sin is never going to be a problem in God's new world. Now this, this might surprise you, but really, it really shouldn't. If you remember when we studied about the devil, I said then that there was a sin committed in heaven at one time. One time there was a sin committed in heaven. That's kind of mind-boggling to us to think that there could have been sin in heaven. But this is what happened. You remember that Satan, Lucifer, rebelled against God. He was an angel of light and rebelled against God. He sinned against God in heaven. And because of that sin, God had to throw him out. And there were uh, one-third of all the evil angels, or angels that were there, that joined Satan in that rebellion, and God had to throw all of them out. But did you know this? The Bible also says that at the present time, it's apparent that Satan, this Lucifer, who was the angel of light, still is able to appear before God in heaven now and to accuse believers. But we notice here that there is a great change when we get to chapter 21 because Satan can never appear in heaven again. None of his demons can ever appear there because in chapter number 20, number 20, Satan was thrown into the lake of fire. He is no more. We get to 21, there is no Satan. There, is no, there are no demons. None of that. Sin is gone. It can never infect the world again. And so, there is no power of sin over us any longer. Now, you can wrestle with this, and I'm sure that you do in your own mind, because God could have stopped all of this. He could have stopped Satan at the very moment that he decided to sin, but he didn't do it. He could have stopped the fall of man if he wanted to do it, but God didn't do it. And I can't explain to you why he didn't, except that for some reason, for God's greater glory, he had something else that was in store that would be far, far more important and far more glorious to him. And this is what it is. It's to see God in his glory and to worship him because of who he is. And so we don't worry about sin anymore. Heaven is sin from purge or purged from sin forever. So we are permanently in a sinless state. We are changed to a state where we can never sin again. I don't even think we're going to know what sin is any longer. That's not going to be a thought in our mind. Heaven is heaven because of the perfection of Christ. Now physically, the world of heaven is new, but far more importantly, we are. Griefs are gone. Sorrow is gone. Pain is gone. Crying is over. Death is never heard of again. And so there we will be, healed in every way, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you today? That all the beautiful sights of heaven are no good unless we are also changed. And we shall be in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So get ready for it. 
Get ready for this unimaginable, momentous change that is coming. And you can understand it only by looking at the negatives. God says, no more, no more, no more. All the negatives are reversed. And that's what heaven is to me. Heaven is seeing Jesus in the perfection, all the perfection that He is. And friends, remember this. He is the only bridge from here to there. You must come by Him. And if we miss everything else about heaven, you need to get this part. If you knew nothing about how great heaven was going to be, you need to know this. To get there, you've got to go through Jesus Christ. And we will continually emphasize that. Come to Jesus if you want to go to heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words that are spoken in Scripture that give us these these wonderful thoughts of hope that we have, that we shall see God, we'll see Jesus, we'll be without pain and sorrow, without tears, without death. Our minds aren't even built to recognize how great that this is. Lord, we pray that you keep that hope in our breast. And then help us to be people that give that information to others. No one goes to heaven without seeing Jesus by faith. If they want to see Him in the flesh, see Him face to face, first we have to see Him by faith. And so I pray, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would open up someone's heart today to realize who Jesus is and to come to Him in repentance and faith. Lord, bless Your people. Be with us today as we think about this. Keep it on our minds. Help us to rejoice in our salvation and just desire to hear more about You, to know that we're going to heaven to see You. And we just thank you, Lord, for the powerful promises of your word that we are sure that this is going to happen because we believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is an incredible false doctrine that is sweeping Christianity today. It's really been around for a long time, but it's never gained the kind of inroads it has into churches like it has in these past few years through wrong types of gospel preaching. And that is the idea of universalism. And that is that God is big enough to include everybody. That God's grace is big enough to include everybody, whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not. God doesn't want people to go to hell, as this doctrine says, and we can agree with that to some extent. And so, because God doesn't want people to go to hell, He's going to save everybody regardless of whether they know about Jesus or not. Even some of the great evangelists, what we consider to be great evangelists, have, have uh, begun to have, have preached that doctrine and said Muslims who, who are sincere and Hindus who are sincere in what they believe, that God sees that sincerity. And however path that they want to get to, to heaven, that's okay because God's grace is big enough for that. God's grace is not big enough to override His own Word. Thy Word is truth. Isn't that what Jesus said? Thy Word is truth. And you can't have truth compromised. You can't have truth that's not truth and still be truth. And Jesus said, as you know it so well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes but by me. So you're not going to get there without Him. I don't care what your opinions are. I've got to have a foundation for my opinion, and my opinion is what God says in His Holy Word. That's all that I need. You need Jesus, and these people need Jesus. That's why we preach to them. If they could get to heaven some other way, then send the missionaries home. We don't need to waste money on missionaries. 
We don't need to tell anybody about Christ. They're going to go to heaven anyway. That's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say that. You must trust Christ. So we must continue to preach this gospel and tell, them, tell people Jesus is the only way because heaven is populated. Is that not clear in the Bible? Heaven is populated. And who is it populated with? People who do not believe in Christ. It's as clear and simple as it can be. You say, well, no, heaven's populated with bad people. Is that not what you are? Is that not what all of us are? Are we not all sinners against God? Haven't we all broken God's law? Are we justly deserving of anything but hell? And why don't we go to hell? One reason. Because Jesus paid the price for us. We trust in Him and we don't go to hell. And that's the only way. That's it. Another verse of our song. God speaks to your heart in some way. We want to encourage you. Trust Christ. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.